Some time ago, a parishioner about this time of year uh, came in and confronted his pastor before the service and said, Give, give, give. That's all I hear. And the pastor smiled at his irritated parishioner and said, Congratulations. That's about the best one word definition of our faith I've ever heard. Give, give, give. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That we might live, that we might not uh, perish. And because God gave and God continues to give, we give. And that's what the Christian faith is all about. Nowhere is that made clearer than in the magnificent prayer of King David. You remember from the setting of this scripture that they are commissioning the construction of the temple that Solomon is to build. This is the end of David's reign. He is passing it on to his son Solomon. And all of the people have gathered and they have made magnificent gifts for the building of the temple. None so great as that of the king. Even for a king, he has given sacrificially toward the construction of God's house. And now he leads the people in this prayer. And I want to do it a little dif differently today. I want you to leave your Bibles open if you have them or using a pew Bible. I want us to look at the magnificent lesson in this prayer that we ought to see on this Thanksgiving and Commitment Sunday. Let us see first of all in the 14th verse that we are bankrupt. He tells us that all that uh, we have is a gift from his hand. How does it read? All things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. Now, I've heard that prayer prayed. I heard it when I was a boy. That's the most often repeated offertory prayer in the world. Where does it come from? This prayer. I never knew where it came from. That's, this is where it comes from. All those years as a child, I heard it. And then I discovered that one of the reasons why David's prayer is so great is because it's still being used in the church today. Strictly speaking, we can't give God anything because all that we have is a gift from God. You can remember that exercise of your children, your little children coming and wanting some money, and you give them money so they can go and buy you a gift. It's kind of silly, but uh, we do it all the time, just like God does it. I told some of you about how the first time we had that happen, our oldest was about four years old, and we had taken her with us camping uh, in North Carolina. We, we take the youth group there, we still do. And uh, she had gone and she was so excited, she just wanted to do something for her parents. And so she asked us for some money and she went into one of these little trinket shops you can find all over and bought us a gift, wrapped it up, and on that last night when we shared gifts, she gave us ours. We opened it. It's the most hideous thing you've ever seen. <laughs> it was a sick green ashtray for people who don't smoke. And the sides of that ashtray, the, the wall part, were coiled up snakes. And we don't like snakes. But the, the, the potter had made it, or who, a ceramic people had made it, so that the snake's mouths were open and you could put your cigarette butts in the mouth of the snake to hold it. It was about the least classy thing I've ever seen in my life. 
And then just to make it even worse, it, it, when, when we looked at it in the bottom of it, this little child who couldn't read yet, there were the words printed in there, I remember you when you didn't have a pot and I'll let you figure out <laughs> the rest of it. I, 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 want, I wanted to save it. My wife threw it away. She was just <laughs> horrified. But it, it was the first evidence that we were, were cultivating this uh, sense of, of, of gift giving in our children. I, I, I believe with Shakespeare how, how, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. And so from the earliest, we, we teach our children that, that we are to give back. And, and, and as God's children, that's, that's what we have to learn. One of the saddest stories in the scripture is the story of Jesus healing those 10 lepers. As they went to see the priests, they were all miraculously cleansed. And only one of them turned back and, and knelt to give thanks to the one who had healed them. Now, somebody suggested, and I believe it, that the nine who didn't say thanks simply exchanged one form of leprosy for another form of leprosy, that of ingratitude. That's an inner kind of leprosy. And when that one who gave thanks knelt, Jesus said, your faith has made you whole. Now the others were healed, but there was no wholeness there. How can you speak of being whole if Jesus is wanting to know where your gratitude is? If Jesus is asking, where is the thanksgiving? How could anyone ever consider themselves whole? As a Christian, we know that a gift is never truly ours until we thank the giver. And we know that because we know it all comes from him. Look back at your text. The second thing he says is, not just only are we bankrupt, but we're pilgrims. He said, you are strangers and sojourners, just like your mothers and your fathers. Well, another time David said, you are sojourners, just a passing guest. You're just passing through. And the amazing thing about this statement is that that, that word for sojourners and strangers is the word the Israelites had always used to refer to the people who were in their country who weren't landowners. The gypsy-like people who were always moving around, letting their flocks graze on the leftovers. They were there because of the courtesy of the landowners. They were there at the pleasure of the landowners. And now David, in this magnificent insight, says, you are sojourners and strangers. He turned it on to the Israelites themselves. He said, you are like these wandering people. You are here for just a little while. I told you about some of my people on my mother's side, how they were a part of the religious persecution in Austria. They came out of those hills giving up their homes and lands rather than give up their faith. Some of them were blessed to come under the influence of the London Missionary Society. And, and through the London Missionary Society, several boatloads of them came to America. My ancestor landed on December 28, 1735 in Savannah, Georgia, about 100 miles from where I was born. The rest of them, the rest of those kinspeople who didn't, weren't blessed to have some foreign missionary aid, they were forced onto the barren plains of Prussia, trying to eke out an existence. And they became for generations gypsy-like people, unlanded people, moving here and there and yon. 
And when I found out about them, I thought, how terrible for some of my ancestors. But then I began to think in a deeper sense, like, like David thought, and I thought, I'm one of them. You know, I may stay longer in one place than they do, but I'm just, I'm just passing through. As the old people used to sing, I'm tenting. We're tenting tonight on the old campground. Uh, we live in a tent. The apostles said, if this tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. Nothing temporary here. We are, we're pilgrims. We're bankrupt pilgrims. We're passing through. Remember that pastor who preached the sermon on stewardship? And afterward, a wealthy member took him out and said, look at this beautiful garden, look at this field of grain, and look at this barn, and look at these thoroughbred cattle, and, and you're trying to tell me that this isn't mine, I work for it, it's mine. And the pastor said, ask me that question again in a hundred years. As, ask me that in a hundred years. We're bankrupt, and, and we're pilgrims, we're passing through. And he says, to, to look at your text, he says, to emphasize it, he says, our days are like shadows. There is no abiding. Another time he says, I'm gone like the shadow at evening time. I'm gone. Just a, just a shadow. Days are like grass. Our mortality shouldn't surprise us. Nobody should be surprised by their mortality. I don't believe you're ready to really live joyously until you've made preparation for dying. I don't believe you can be joyous until you've made preparation for dying. Now, it comes like a thief in the night. I read a story the other day about a, a woman who called her pastor for help. She'd gotten a letter in the mail and, and informed her that she had just won $2 million uh, through the Reader's Digest sweepstakes. And she, she wanted some help because her husband was recuperating from a very serious heart attack. And she thought, if I tell him that we've just won $2 million, the excitement will be too much, he'll die on me. I've got to get some help. And so she called her pastor, and the pastor said, I'll pray about it. I'll come up with something. And, and he, he came up with an idea, and he came over to see him, and he went into this convalescing husband, and he said, now, I, I want you to help me. I have a situation in the parish, and I think you can help me. I want to pose this hypothetical situation. He said, uh, what, what do you think uh, I ought to do? He said, what, what would you do, for instance, if, if you just learned that you had, you had won $2 million? He said, well, the first thing I'd do is, is write a check for a million dollars and give it to the church. And the pastor dropped dead from a heart attack. I mean, there's no excuse in our, in our being surprised like that. I think we lost something when, when in our cities we, we have a, the cemeteries out in the edge of town and, and we have the churches in another place. I think every time we used to go to church and, and we'd see the church and that little God's acre there, the cemetery, we were reminded that we are passing through like our fathers and our mothers. I preached a revival in a, in a little town not long ago, and there's a huge cemetery right in the middle. You can't go anywhere without going around that cemetery, and it has red lights at every corner. And I thought, this is so annoying. I was in a hurry to get where I was going, but then I thought, this is really a pretty good idea that we remember that. And there isn't an ounce of morbidity in that. 
realizing that is the very stuff of a great life. The psalmist said he pitied people who went on like they were going to live forever. He said he pitied people who thought their houses would continue forever and their dwellings would go from generation to generation. He said he pitied those people who call their lands after their own names, who did all these elaborate things, he said, and then when they leave, they won't take anything with them. He pitied them. The Lord encountered a man like that in one of his stories, you remember? And he said he was a fool. A part of wisdom is, is accepting that as our fathers and mothers, as our ancestors have come and lived for a little while and then gone to that house not made with hands, the same is true for us. Billy Graham says we're like grasshoppers. We just hop around a little while and then we hop on off the scene. And when we start to think about our lives in terms of the contribution we can make, what a difference it makes. No treasure is ever truly possessed that can be lost. Admire that person then who exchanges what he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. Exchanges what he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. And then look again at your text. All that we provide for you, O God, to build up your house, all of it comes from your hand. Now he's being redundant. He already said that when he said, All things come of thee, and of thine own had we given thee. And now he says it again. All that we provide comes from your hand. When the Bible gets redundant, that's the most compelling uh, word we could ever read. It's another way of saying you better listen. Jim Fleming said, uh, when, when the gospel writer has Jesus say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you better listen with both ears, because what he's about to say is really important. So here, he's being redundant. He's saying it again. I read a story the other day about a woman who needed that, to hear that. Uh, she had gone down from her office. She had taken the elevator down to the snack bar for a coffee break. She had a magazine she had stuffed in her purse, and she wanted to read that for a little while. And, and, and she went up to get some coffee and, and, and bought a, a package of cookies and, and looked all around the room to see if she could find a place to sit. Finally, she saw a table where there's just one man uh, reading the newspaper and drinking his coffee. So she, without a word, she went over and pulled out the chair and sat down with him. She took out her magazine and she set down her coffee and then she started to drink her coffee and to read her magazine and she reached for a cookie on, on the table. And when she reached for a cookie and started to eat it, the man reached for a cookie. And, and, and she just glared at him like one of those how dare you kind of glares. And, and after she finished that cookie, she reached for another one and, and this man who just smiled uh, reached for another cookie too. And this time she really had it with this smiling character. She just uh, was fuming. She got up and almost knocked the table over and stormed back over to the elevator, just left her coffee and everything. And, and while she was waiting on the elevator, she stuffed her magazine back in her purse and then she felt them, those cookies. An unopened bag of cookies <laughs> in her purse. She realized that she had been eating that man's cookies <laughs> all that time. 
Now, I think this is a good day to ask ourselves, whose cookies are we eating? <laughs> and the amazing thing is, isn't it, is the, the shock, the shock that came to her and, and comes to us when we realize whose cookies we've been eating. And then we have to confess that sometimes we've been upset because the owner of the cookies wanted one or two himself. That really makes us upset. So Commitment Sunday is a good time to say, whose cookies are we eating anyway? And are we in the business of sharing one or two of those cookies with the owner? Look at our text. I know you try our hearts, O God. He tries our hearts. He doesn't tempt us, but he tries our hearts. And David said, I'm so glad, God, that you see your people offering freely and joyously. It, those two go together, freely and joyously. And, and, and he, he said, I know you try us. If we didn't have a pledge Sunday in the church, we'd have to invent one. Because God likes to try the heart of his people to see where their hearts are directed. And, and there is no greater trial for a materialistic person than to indicate how they propose to spend their money next year. I tell you, if we didn't have a day like that to let God try us and test our hearts, we'd, we'd just have to invent one. That's, that's just the way it is. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there is your heart also. This is a Sunday when we determine where our heart is, where our heart is directed. In that magnificent cathedral in Florence, Italy, there is a huge dome. One thing is unusual about that dome. That dome has an, has an opening in the top through which a shaft of sunlight comes in. Now it was put there for a specific purpose. That, that cathedral was built in a marshy area. So they're uncertain about its foundation. And they put this uh, slit in the, in the dome and they put a brass plate in the floor underneath that dome. And on June 21st of every year, the sunlight coming through that slit in the dome is supposed to cover that brass plate completely. The engineers gather around. If it does not cover that brass plate, then they know they better get to work because their foundation has shifted. Isn't it wonderful? that once a year in a tangible and specific way, the light of God's Spirit can cover our hearts as we make our commitments and we can determine whether or not our foundation is still secure. Commitment Sunday is that kind of Sunday. It doesn't tell the church. It tells us where our hearts are directed. We have only to look at our specific commitment to know the shape of our foundation. And then quickly, he says, Lord, keep this disposition forever in the hearts of your people. Keep these high and holy purposes. Don't ever let them lose this disposition that lets them give freely and joyously. Isn't that wonderful? God, our people give so freely and so joyously. Keep that disposition forever in their hearts. Like one of our members last year, he and his wife began to tithe for the first time. 
And his wife said, I'll agree to let us tithe, provided you'll do one thing. And he said, what is it? She said, if you'll smile when you write the check. We're not going to do it if you can't smile. Because the Lord loves that joy, loves that cheerful giver. Lord, don't ever let us lose that disposition. And then, why do we do it? Because the first three verses, 10 through 13, tell us how great God is. Thine is the kingdom and the glory forever. All this you have done. Our response is because this is to God. If you want a one-sentence definition of stewardship, stewardship is our grateful response to a generous God. Stewardship is our grateful response to a generous God. I love the story about Dick in that book called The Theology of the Hammer, all about Habitat for Humanity. They were building a couple of those homes down in Florida. It's a wonderful, wonderful program. They build homes for people who otherwise would never have a home. They had just finished one house and the Perez family had moved in, a big family with lots of little children. And now they were building a house right next to it and those little children were just in their way every time they tried to take a step. And one of the volunteers named Dick was nursing a bad attitude. It didn't take much to set him off or get him upset. You ever run into anybody like that? Well, he, he's just nursing a bad attitude. And, and he's always complaining about those children being in the way. And finally, they're up putting a roof on this new house. And Dick comes down for something, and one of the little boys climbs up there with him. And when Dick sees him up there, he says, that's the last straw, I've had it. I'm not doing anything else. These children are now up here on the roof. Said so they're going to fall off and break their necks. I don't want to have any part with this project. And a man beside him who was a lot more patient and loving. Said, Dick, don't you know that these little boys are so proud of their new house and so grateful that uh, they're up here just trying to say thank you. They want to help. Uh, why don't you uh, make him your partner and, and, and let him help you? It won't hurt you to let him hand you some nails or something. Dick thought about it for a moment, and he said, well, okay, I'll do it. And he turned to the little boy, and he said, if we're going to be partners, said, we have to know one another's name. He said, my name is Dick. What's your name? And the little boy said something that changed Dick's life forever. The little boy said, my name is Jesus. I'm Jesus. Dick said from then on, every time he gave a dollar, and every time he did something, he did it for Jesus. And that makes all of the difference in the world. Amen. Now, friends, we're going to sing our hymn of commitment. I'm going to come stand over here to the side. In the event there's someone here who wants to unite with our fellowship, I want you to know where to find me. I'd like to present you at the close of the service. The rest of you are invited to come and put your cards here on the altar rail while we're singing this closing hymn. Before we begin to sing, however, and before you begin to come, I want all of our leaders who set the pace for us last Sunday, I want all of our leaders uh, who pledged on Loyalty Sunday, would you stand where you are right now, please, all of you who pledged, our leaders and workers, last Sunday.
I want all of you who are standing now, you can see who they are. They pledged last Sunday, our leaders and our workers. I want them to pray for you uh, while you come to make your pledge today. The leaders will pray while you come to the altar with your card. Let us all stand now as we sing our hymn of commitment. Mm -hmm. 